0: Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Oh, wait a second. Oh, no, that's good. All right, um, so today, we're going to start talking about We've laid, I've laid the basics out about operant conditioning, and I am aware of it. It was boring. Um, this starts to get a little interesting because we're starting to get into stuff now. We've got the animal's now trained up; it's responding, it's on some schedule, whatever. We're now going to find out what's controlling its behavior. Okay, so a lot of people might call this uh, stimulus control. So, and a lot of people might call this a useless freaking podium that's in my way. <laughs> anyway, hate this room. Um, so, we're talking about stimulus control. What's controlling the animal's behavior? What's making it do stuff once it's learned? So, some, we'll talk a bit. Remember I talked in the very beginning of the course of product and process. We'll talk a bit about the product, but mostly now it'll be process stuff. How does it work? And remember, Skinner was atheoretical. Right? So we'll talk about schedules and that. He didn't have a reason why animals behave that way. He was describing them. So that'll be sort of the difference in what we'll talk about it now. And let's get to the you know the core of this. Right away, we're talking about, remember the three-term contingency is SD, so it's turn of stimulus. Um, response reinforcement. That's supposed to be the way it works, the three-term contingency. So how important are responses and reinforcers for, for learning that looks like operant conditioning? Well, Thorndike and Skinner would say that they're essential. In fact, they would say you couldn't have learning without a response and a reinforcer, obviously. That's, that's what they would say. On the other hand, Edward, Edward Tolman said, Tolman said again with some strange font, what the hell happened there? Um, not that important is what I should say. So he was studying what's called latent learning. It's funny, you it looks like that there. That's wacky. What, what happened? Is it a name? No, it's not supposed to be like So, what's this here? Let's go back. So, what was Tolman talking about? Um, Tolman, who was, by the way, a very interesting fellow, uh, Tolman, uh, Edward Tolman, uh, protested against American involvement in World War I. So, that's pretty brave were a lot of anti-war protesters in the early 1900s. World War II, however, he was completely, I mean, it was we were fighting Hitler now a little different. Uh, Pullman, in fact, worked for the uh, government developed along with Scar and a lot of other psychologists developing weapons systems. One of the weapons systems they developed or helped develop or were developing was a pigeon guided missile. And you might think that's insane. Well, think about this. All we do is we put a we get a pigeon, we train it to peck at a picture of a target we're interested in, perhaps a Japanese warship. And by pecking at that, it's going to steer the missile. Now you put it in the nose of the bomb, and it's pecking and steering the missile. They didn't have to eventually do this because you know eventually there were guided weapons, pretty primitive guided weapons. There were guided weapons of warships. I told him his brother worked on the Manhattan Project and helped develop the atomic bomb. He was a physicist. <coughs> and then after the war, there was the anti-communist hysteria of the Red Scare in the United States. And academics were made to sign loyalty oaths saying they were not communists. I told him he was not a communist, but he wouldn't sign the oath. He said, my politics is none of your business. I'm not a scientist. Um, for which he got in a great deal of trouble. Uh, he had died shortly thereafter. But the interesting thing was that he wouldn't sign it. Most people did. Tolman's uh, important enough now that at Stanford University, where he taught, the psychology building is called the Tolman Hall. So I mean, it's, it's clearly the case that you know, he was right. So this was a cool guy. This was an interesting guy. A rebel all his life, really, stood up for what he thought was right. And he said, that you don't need reinforcers, and he said animals can learn things without being reinforced, but they just can't—they can't show you yet because it's not important enough. Just to no say food involved. So he had rats running maze, complicated maze. Yeah. Um, so you know, like the kind of you would have uh, as a kid in a comic book, you know, you draw along. Okay, except they're at it's an actual physical maze. And at the end, of cheese, and of course, rats like cheese. So the, the rats get better and better at this. And so you can look at over days, we have test them once a day. We can look at a number of errors. We can look at which are wrong turns. We'll look at the time elapsed, last, like how long it takes them. So whatever it is, we'll just say uh, errors here. And of course, they start out making a lot of errors, because they're just learning the maze. we make fewer errors, fewer errors, fewer errors, and fewer errors. And fewer errors, and fewer errors and then by day 10, they're hardly making any mistakes. Of course, they learned it. I mean, that's not surprising. Okay. Well, so far, that's, there's a bunch of responses that are reinforcing. Big deal. Well, he had another group. And this group was not reinforced, it was put in the maze and around. Now, this group did nothing. It's not quite as straight, but it basically is. Nothing happens. They don't get any better. Now, Skinner or Mike, would tell you that because they have them reinforced, they haven't learned anything. Right? They haven't learned anything. However, on day 10, he gives them cheese at the end of the maze. So day 11 comes along. These guys are still down here. And these guys drop down here. So day 10 didn't know she's gonna get cheese, day 11. well they learned was cheese at the end of the May, which is almost the monster at the end of the book. Nobody? Okay. Kid's book, old kid's book. Um they suddenly drop off like this. And they're as good as these guys. In fact, if you look at the original graph in Tolman's amazing paper, Cognitive Maps in Rats and Men, which is a great title for a paper. <coughs> In that paper, when you look at the graph, in fact, the ones that are in the late learning group do just a little bit better. I don't think it's statistically significant, but they do a little bit better. It's kind of striking than the guys that were having the standard training. So the learning is late. They've learned it. It's late learning. It's there. They never have a reason to show you. Right? So they've learned the names. They've learned what Tolman called a cognitive map. Right? So, Tolman said that's a cognitive map they've learned. They've actually got a representation of the world and how things, the landmarks and such, relate to each other. (coughs) Where Skinner would be pretty upset by that. Because it's like animals don't think, and even if they do, we can't. Study thinking because it's an internal mental event. Huh. So you don't need a response. Sorry, reinforcement. That's what that shows. I'm not saying you don't always need one. I'm saying there are cases when you have an extreme position like Skinner or Thorndike or Watson or these guys have, all you need is one counterexample to show them they're wrong. So, in this case, the one counterexample is this latent learning phenomenon, this latent learning paradigm with the rats that never got cheese at the end of the mess. All right? Questions? Does that make sense? Do you understand the paradigm, you understand the preparation, how this was done? It's pretty neat. Later on, by the way, one of, one of, one of Tolman's former graduate students, Henry Gleitman, at the University of Pennsylvania, He took rats, and he put them in little carts, little toy carts, and he drove them around the maze, and then he put cheese in one day, and then the next day they were perfect, and they'd never ran the freaking maze except for one day. Oh, you don't even need a response. That's pretty cool. Also, I wish I could find the picture, because there's this great picture of all you see is a guy's hand and a little cart and a rat sitting on this little cart, and he's kind of strapped in. response or a responsible reinforcer. Perhaps it's only in special cases. Maybe it's only for learning about maps of your environment. strikes right. me, however, that's a pretty damn important thing to learn is where stuff is in the world. Spatial memory, we call that today. Questions about that and the late learning? Hey, Tolman didn't do the little cards. That was my Tolman students. I think, actually, he's second author of it and Tolman. Hey, by the way, was the professor for all those people at Penn, like Bob Mascorla and Peter Holland and uh, Vince Lelardo and Sir Charlotte. So there's, like, this continuity thing. And I don't know why the thing did that. That's weird. So you don't need a reinforcer. Reinforcers don't hurt. No no one's going to say they hurt. They certainly teach pigeons to to, to peas, rats to push bars. They may strengthen some sort of SR bond, but it isn't clearly a necessary condition for learning. You don't need it. You can have it, and it helps. No one's saying these rats didn't learn this partially by getting some food, but they also learned where the stuff was in the maze because they're just in a maze. I mean, it seems to me that the reinforcement itself would become part of an animal's representation of how the world works. Well, you know, again, it's a very small section of the world. But if you're a rat and you're in an experiment, that's a big part of your life. So in a small part of the world, you know, world where rats run on mazes, one man rat has the courage to love. <laughs> It's a really bad movie. <coughs> so these rats, or whatever—pigeons, shakety—no matter people, no matter what—they'll learn reinforcement, SR bonds, perhaps, sure. But it's just, it just part of representation. It's not the whole thing. It's not the be-all and end-all. Okay. Oh look, Bobbitt Scordilla shows up. Never really get away from Bob. He's very smart man. So Cole and squirrel well, this is a really good experiment. So they're looking at it. is the is the, is the connection to the stimulus and the response the only thing, and is it or is it just part of a representation? And of course, this is one of those questions that you wouldn't think would be answering, answerable by clever experiments, just like you wouldn't think SS versus SR and classical conditioning was answerable until Bob does the experiment. Well, he does it again. Second off. Okay, rats have a chain they can pull and they get water in this experiment. So it's just a little little bit of a little chain they can pull. It's in a puzzle box, kind of affair, right? They can pull in this little chain and water comes out so they get their water. They have a little lever they can press and they can get food. Okay? And that, again, you've heard about that. That's not surprising. It's a pretty simple setup. So rats very quickly learn these two contingencies. Right? So, so far, this is like, wait a second, maybe Bob's slipping. These aren't that, it's not that right? great. Yeah, but then he pairs the food with poison. Make it sick. Hmm. Pairs the food with poison. So they learn who to guess. So that's about, that's a classical machine, right? <clears throat> food leads to poison. Food leads to poison. So food makes you sick. Now, if it's simply a stimulus-response bond, they should keep pushing this lever, because stimulus lever leads to food. Pushing lever leads to food. However, if it's more of a representational thing, if they've learned that, oh yeah, and food makes you sick, you shouldn't push the lever anymore. But they should still pull the chain. That should be no problem. that rats don't try to press the lever. Even though you've reinforced rats for pressing the lever. They now no longer press the lever. Now, I know this makes complete sense. You're thinking, well, oh, of course they don't. Food leads to poison. But that's an extra step. That's not part of the free term contingency. Right? That's extra. That's like, he didn't say disorder of stimulus, response, reinforcer and 46 other things that might go in. it That's not in there, right? And that's what that's saying, there's something else, there's another consequence, and the rat has learned that that food leads to the poison, therefore it doesn't push the bar and get the food. Even though it's been reinforced for doing this, it does that at steady state level. <laughs> this is very clever. <coughs> As usual, coming out of our historical lab. it's freaking clever. Do you see why? And I know, it's, you look at it and go, yeah, of course. But that's not what learning with conditioning says. It's not what B.F. Skinner's version of operating conditioning says. It says, we've trained the animal to push a bar. It gets food for pushing the bar. It should keep pushing the freaking bar. So that's why this is kind of a revolutionary experiment in a lot of respects. Very clever. Very clever. Super clever. All right. So, therefore, the response of the reinforcer has been connected, not directly. Because the response leads to poison. We know that. Yes, I know we all know that. Well, if I told you, if you push this, you're going to get a stake, but it's also going to make you sick, you're not going to push the freaking part. No matter how many, oh, it's a good mistake, you might. But, you're probably not But no one told, we didn't tell the rat that. We told the rat that food comes from bar. There's a connection made there. And I mean, one could make a guess that the connection is like, you know, so you got uh, bar press, uh, and you've got food, and you got poison, but you've also got that connecting there. So they're all connected there. I probably have to do the, change my, what's file protections or whatever, so. Okay. <laughs> so it's not like directly connected. But maybe it. Not it, it can't be like this, but it wasn't directly connected by the external. The animal's representation probably was something like this. Right? So all three parts of the three-term contingency probably are connected together. It's probably not just the two. It probably doesn't just go SD, response, reinforcement, like everybody thought forever. Okay? This flies in the face of everything Skinner ever said. Well, not everything. Like when he said, what's for dinner? Probably the not fly in the face of that. Unless his wife said, poison. Which makes it, I don't know if he was married. I don't know if his wife ever poisoned him. If he had a very happy life. Probably not. Most wives don't poison husbands. It's pretty rare. And he's apparently a very nice guy. All right. So, Question about that, make sense? Okay, now, we've been talking so far, listen, we'll go to the door of habituation. We've been talking so far, like, there are two kinds of learning. Well, are there two kinds of learning? Yes. There's cooperative conditioning and classical conditioning. Um, Yeah, from the experimenter's point of view, sure. <coughs> so you could also say no it's not they're all just about associations <coughs> and you can say there's an association mechanism okay or you could say really this is just a giant waste of human spirit why do you ask a question like this first of all it's gonna be different. There's gonna be commonalities between all species, and that's something that no one would ever deny. That would be crazy to deny. That pigeons learn like rats. Yeah, sure. The schedules of reinforcement get the same kind of graphs. We can think of operant conditioning, that or sorry, classic conditioning, and acquisition and asymptote and, and, and extinction and spontaneous recovery. And holy crap, does that ever look a lot like what we get in opera uh, conditioning? It looks a lot like we get habituation, so you we know we're going to ignore that. So they look the same. That said, we also know that, say, a taste aversion, I talked about, you know, bright, noisy water, right, about how a, uh, a rat can't learn to associate a noise with sickness or a color with sickness or a brightness, but a bird can a bird can. Are those different mechanisms in those different species? Well, well they're not different mechanisms. But they, there have to be some differences. It's like a human brain works the same way that a rat brain works and the same way that the nervous system in a nematode works. Acetylcholine is acetylcholine is acetylcholine. But there are some fundamental differences there, too. So this question here, you'll hear people say there's one type of learning, or that there's two types of learning. And those people, that always sounds bad when you say those people, doesn't it? sounds like I'm saying something bad about it, like i kind of racist. Well, those people, well, those people tend to be Put like this. I mean, it just seems so old-fashioned. It's not looking at the biology of the animal. It's not looking at its life history. It's not looking at all <clears throat> its ecology. And not that doing things in a lab is bad, but you still have to realize you have a living organism there that has evolved over millions of years. It's not a computer program. So are there, is it there more than one type of? We can argue that it's all day long, and I don't think it gets you anywhere. Is it all learning? Sure. Something with time one affects behavior, time two. I got you. That's, that's fine. I totally buy that. But to me, the question itself is kind of silly. It's like saying, the birds have two moving mechanisms? They can walk and they can fly. Yeah, they do. Well, it's all locomotion. Well, that's also true. Is that argument getting us anywhere? Is that helping us explain Locomotion in birds? Well no, it's not doing anything. And it I think I said, I think it fundamentally this kind of question, this question itself, I think it, it completely ignores the biology of animals, which really bugs me. <coughs> I would say I'm in a minority musician. To say it's just that this is a question we shouldn't worry about. I don't say it's a question. It's not like you know, you know, some questions just can't be answered, man. It's not like that. It's just the question itself just seems silly to me. Thoughts on that? You see what I'm saying, though? I just think the question's a little silly. I don't think it's people that do it bad. Still talking to my son. No, it's not bad. Just don't do it again. <laughs> Alright. So you'll hear a lot of stuff about this. I just ignore it. But that's me. It's not like it's something people don't do. People don't worry about it. It's just I I just don't understand why it's a question. I just don't get it. Are there commonalities? Yeah, we can look at the graphs, look, look, look at acquisition and asymptote and extinction of spontaneous recovery that happens <coughs> with everything and every kind of learning we've ever seen. There's no argument there. We even get similar stuff with, with language learning, which is a pretty special human thing. We get something similar in song and songbird learning, songbird learning, and would we say those are all the same system? No. But why are we even asking that question? I just don't see what drives this question. I guess is you know, you know, is, is is Tolman's late learning the same as a pigeon learning a key? I don't know. I really, 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 really don't care. I just don't see how it's a question. Right. We can do stuff with operant conditioning and surprises. You can you can be taught through operant conditioning to control your heart rate. That's pretty nifty. Now how do you do this? Well there's a couple of ways. Um, the way you can do this with anybody is you can do this with what's called biofeedback, which used to be exceedingly expensive. And now it can be done with parts you can buy, you know, like a gradient shack the source by circuit so you can the native. Um because it used to be you'd be hooked up to like a blood pressure cuff and it would test your blood pressure, and then every time it got below a certain number, right? So we're going to teach you to lower your heart rate. Anybody can raise their heart rate. That's easy. (laughs) But lowering your heart rate. And a beat would sound your heart rate lower. And that's the reinforcer. And then you learn what you were doing. Because, of course, how it's learning. Just before that reinforcement came, how did you feel? What were you doing? And you learn to calm down. So we can condition people to do this. And in fact, this is what people that do, you know, meditation That, and you know, you may have read about meditation and how people that meditate, transcendental meditation that kind of thing, they can lower their heart rate way down. And you'll hear people say that it's all a spiritually mystic, wonderful, great experience, and note my hand waving. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's offering conditioning. <laughs> They've learned how to lower their heart rate. It's impressive as hell, don't misunderstand me. But it's not a spirit doing it. Well, if you want to believe that, that's fine. But it's a spirit that help them do operate conditioning. Right? So they've learned how to lower their heart rates. It's impressive. I can't do it. I wish I could. I should calm down. So what you've done, basically, is you've learned. You've been reinforced for when your heart rate lowers. And it's just learning so... What was the case before that? You learn what that sort of state felt like? So that's kind of cool. And this is done, this can be done in rats too, but give them food. They won't work for bees either. So it's biofeedback is the way that this is often used to be done, or is done. It can also be done again through meditation because people learn how to relax. Okay, so I'm not saying meditation is bad for you, it's. It's bugged. I think people really didn't know that they lowered their heart rates on that stuff at once. you stop pop repetition. It's impressive. I couldn't do it. It doesn't always work though. Not everybody. You have to really learn how to attend to your inner state. It's a hard thing to attend to. It's like, it's like you know how um, you know, but hypnotism. I know it has nothing to do with learning, but you know hypnotism. Like when you go to the hypnotist guy uh, and he, he uh, gets you to say you're going to be a chicken, right? No, I mean really. Some people it works, some people it doesn't, and it works because some, probably because some people are really good at paying at dividing their attention <coughs> to their internal state. It's the same sort of thing. If you can't really pay attention to what your body feels like, you're not. I mean, this is going to work. But it can work. That's the point, point. and it does work in other animals besides people. But it's pretty cool because what we can do here is, with athletes, they can learn to calm down when they're in the starting blocks of, of a race. They want to be excited, but not too excited, right? Too excited, you do a false start. Not excited enough, you don't do the. The only person who's not, who wouldn't be not excited enough and still 100 meters would be Usain Bolt. Right? Because he could be like just sitting there and, oh, god, he started, and he could just run. I think in the next Olympics he should go backwards, just for fun. Start backwards. But I'm going this way this time. You guys probably see you still can't catch me. I don't get awesome. Or as he's going, crossing the finish line, next time, I want him running, and then he should turn around and wave, like that. No, Carrie, you're fun. Make the Olympics more fun. Nobody hates Usain Bolt. It's great. Everybody loves him. He's just fun. He shows up on Saturday Night Live like two weeks ago. He's just there because he's Usain Bolt. He shows up. You know, the world's fastest man can I be in a sketch? Sure. (laughs) Who (laughs) is it? So, perhaps it's Usain Bolt. He's coming to the class, which I would be. No, I would please teach it because he can teach it faster than anybody. Um, so, this doesn't always work, but suddenly, high performance athletes, they get these kind this relaxation training a lot. Because you can't be too twitchy in the starting blocks, but you can't be too relaxed. That's sort of your dots, and Law kind of thing. Right? And a buddy of mine who was a sprinter, who was a sprinter uh, at sort of the second tier world level, like he was trained by his coach, was Charlie Francis, who injected Ben Johnson with steroids, so it was the same guy. Uh, and he said that the biggest one of the hardest things to learn is when you're in a, in a meet and there's a crowd, even if they're all quiet, they you know they're all looking at you. And you're having starting blocks, it's like, I can't. I don't want a fall start. Right? So calm down. <laughs> this is like when I was, I guess in fourth year, my brother, unfortunately, my brother's a record producer, right? So he had a studio in our house. And I'm studying, you know, um, for finals and stuff, and he's recording drum tracks in the basement. Or you can hear a guy singing. Yeah, it's muffled because he had a booth built. Like, we had a real recording studio in our basement. you know, I'm sitting there trying to do really complicated stuff, and I'm hearing somebody yelling. And I said, like, oh, they're just recording some vocals. We eventually work at a thing. That thing was, you can't record drums night before our exam. <laughs> All right. So what's a reinforcer? What the hell kind of question is that? What is learning? What's a reinforcer? Are there more than one type of <laughs> learning? What is it? It's all just bizarre questions you can't answer. OK. Well, Skinner defines a reinforcer as an event that increases the likelihood of just enough about that OK? I know what it is. Some event that increases the likelihood of a behavior. So yes, I know. Tests increase the likelihood of studying behavior. Is it being clever or something? Is it nice to a reinforcer. <laughs> That's enough something that feels good. Food. Typically, food's used almost always as a reinforcement. So maybe it's the reduction of a need or a drive. You know that motivation? That kind of thing have drives needs, right? So maybe you're hungry. In fact, we work up with that, typically. Uh, very often what people do is they food deprive their animals. Now, not badly. They're not starving. They're not but like you make them work for food, right? So you, you, they're hungry enough, you're pecking so you get a little bit of grain means something to them. Okay. And they are building us a really nice faculty lounge. Maybe that's a bit. I don't know where it is. I think it's a ghost. What would it be in Halloween, you know. and <laughs> all. Okay. <laughs> My son's going to be an angry bird for Halloween. That's, oh, that's cool. cool. That's what <laughs> he wanted to be. He plays the game constantly. He's an angry bird this year, so that's pretty good. Cool. So, I'm the one who always convinces to build more houses, though. Like, after he's got, like, ten houses done, and it's cold, this way, It's hell. It's 31st of October. in Sioux-Saint-Marie, It's freaking cold he's like, I want to go home. I said, no, no, we'll go to more houses, man. <laughs> because I'm still looking through this fantasy I had. You know, like, we're going to fill this whole pillowcase full of candy. <laughs> and no one ever did There'd be guys that said they would Because oh, when you think about it, like, 100 candies. This is about 100 chocolate bars. I'm give up to give like, it to 90. 87. i three them. I hit them up high, but no one else can reach in with me. <laughs> 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 I go ahead and freeze. So that's going to fill that much space. So if you're going to fill a whole pillowcase. You're going to need seven, eight hundred candies. That's not happening. And there's always that one dentist that gives her toothbrushes. You remember that neighborhood? There's that one that? <laughs> dentist that's handed to toothbrushes and dental floss. It's like, just live a little. You know, it's one night a year. Besides, good for your business. Watch some teeth. <laughs> <laughs> and there's always, was always us I was doing more homemade stuff, right? Because it's always all parrots are wine in the urban legends. You know what? It's full of razor blades and poison. But when I was a kid, like, parents would make, like popcorn balls. When I was young, we all dressed up as scarecrows. Uh, <laughs> or, or uh, you know, fudge. Really good stuff. Like parrots, but fudge was great. It like somebody you make actual fudge in the beginning. And my dad was always well, saying, well, it could be dangerous. I have that. It's always every year. Now you look at your can, you've got to screen it. Now, you can't have that. You can't have that. It's all like, you know, punks of cake. You uh, know, kind of really wonderful yeah. stuff. And I went with rockets. Remember those? Yeah. yeah. Candy kisses, which is like, it's like if you took molasses and let it and for yeah. days. And then it hardened. And then you yeah. go, that's candy kisses. Or fun sized chocolate bars. Are they fun? No, they're too small. <laughs> <laughs> it's not fun. They're anti fun chocolate bars. <laughs> all right. Candy one. Yeah, well, that's true. My, my son came this way. They, they, everybody behind out chicken nuggets and pizza. <laughs> so he said, want that much. How was <laughs> I I don't that? Anyway. how <laughs> that. No. Oh, yeah. Okay, so drive reduction. So you got a need for candy. You're deprived of candy all year. Right. Because you don't know what So what's driving, what reinforces look You've got to reduce your need for candy. You reduce the, the bird is hungry. It pecks more. It turns out actually you can get, I and mean, people took this as a sort of gospel for the longest time you must keep your animals at 85% of their free feeding weight. So you let them eat on their own, like an all you can eat bird buffet for a couple of uh, well, they wouldn't eat birds, all so you can eat grain buffet. Uh, and then you take 85% of that and you put them on a diet, grain now. Same thing with rats. And then it turns out, in fact, birds, pigeons at least I know, will work for, they won't be deprived at all. You can actually get them to 100% of their regular free feeding weight. They'll just eat, they'll just work for food anyway. So it's interesting that that's one thing. It kind of says that it needs to be this. I'm not saying it isn't this, and animals won't work really hard if there's something available that they, that, you know, if they're hungry or thirsty, and the not usually is thirst. It's really complicated and... Uh, animals can't, just, well, animals possibly, can't last very long in the, the water. Um, so we got drive production or meat reduction. That's that's a good guess. And it does have some intuitive appeal. Um, now, getting think CREMAC is a really neat idea. Now, CREMAC's idea about what a reinforcer is actually doesn't talk about meat or drive reduction at all, which I kind of like. And this is really turning the guy's head. Is food the reinforcer or is it the act of eating the reinforcer? Well, dude, you totally blew my mind. <laughs> How do I know that it's food or the act of eating that I want to do right now? See, because I'm high, I was doing that, so I can fill in the joke there. I'm not high now. Not <laughs> now. Now. It's going to take a little ecstasy, I'll be fine. But. <laughs> So is it food or is it the act of eating? What a crazy idea. Maybe, in fact, it's the act of eating itself that's the reinforcer. Crazy. So this is called pre Principle. I really like this. As completely counterintuitive it is, you know, you'll see in a second, it actually works. So given two responses arranged in an operative conditioning procedure. More probab- probable behaviors will reinforce less probable behaviors. But less probable responses will not reinforce more probable responses. So what's the most probable thing for a bird? To, what's a really probable thing? Well, eating behavior is very probable. Is key pecking behavior probable compared to when a bird goes into a the skinner box? No. no. It really isn't. They do it eventually. We know that. But do they do it as a matter of course? The birds just walk around picking random stuff. I know it looks like that, but they're usually looking for food. OK. So again, more problem behavior will reinforce less problem behavior. So how do we test something like this? Well, there's a couple of great experiments here. So here's some interesting data. Um, this is old, pre-dat, Uh studying the sebus monkeys. I think that's what they're called. OK. He then puts them in the box and gets in, just wants to see how likely any behavior is for the monkeys. Um, you know, hey, hey, they're the monkeys. Hey, that was just <laughs> <laughs> me. Um, it's an old TV show. Yeah. Well, before, well, while your parents were young. Yeah. yeah the monkeys. What the Yeah. the okay. <laughs> like, Two of them are dead now. That's how old they are. Lever pressing was the most likely thing. So they got a lever in here. They got a little door they can open and close. And they got a plunger they can pull. It's like, you know, when you get kids, you get that little mobile over a baby's head and they pull this crap and all that and it entertains them for hours and no one knows why because they're babies. They don't know anything. Boy, this is fun. I thought floating inside my mother's womb was great. This is awesome. Pushing stuff and look a mirror, you know. Okay. They they get over that stuff very quickly, by the way. Mm-hmm. And they start moving and everything just falls apart. Mm-hmm. You gotta protect everything in your house. So most likely thing they did was press the letter. Next was open a little door, and then was push on this. <coughs> okay. So now we you know we have well, mostly this is for all the monkeys, by the way. It's kinda interesting that. There be a species' general preference and a preference for these behaviors because they seem such such arbitrary things. But look at a Wouldn't the lever pressing be more like a natural? Well, maybe it is, but I mean, why? How many levers are there in the world? But how many little doors are there? If you associate it to maybe. They associate it mean, nothing. Know. These are naive monkeys thrown into a box. Well, not thrown, <laughs> they're placed. They almost. Because you can't do that with monkeys. <laughs> don't think like that. <laughs> yeah. Monkeys are neat to work with, but when they don't want to do the experiment, you don't force them. Because an escaped monkey is way harder to catch than an escaped bird or rat. Escaped monkey, they can, they can climb, and claws, teeth. Escaped bird, you get, you get a net. Escaped monkey, no. So you open the thing, and we'll do the experiment, and they look at you and go, hey, OK, dude, no problem. Not a problem. But it's weird. I don't know why it'd be like this, but it is, and who knows? It probably is something more like their environment. I don't know what, but it could be. So, okay, we know then that something reinforces the L reinforces D. Yeah, because later the L's missing. So lever pressing should be able to reinforce door opening. Lever pressing should be able to reinforce plunger pulling does. So you can actually, what you do is you get them, you show them a little door, and they can only press the lever once they push the door, Oh, they'll do that. It maintains behavior. Lever pressing reinforces the plunger a plunger pulling. A plunger pulling cannot reinforce door opening or lever pressing. There's nothing biologically relevant here at all. It's just more likely it's to get to do a more likely behavior. In other words, we can use shorthand here. The, the monkeys, in order, because they want to lever press, they will door open for a while. Hmm. Because you want to play Assassin's Creed 3, you will study for him. Oh, you got i yet? There's another game. I got it yesterday. It's great. We're a great month. Every Tuesday is new game coming up. It's awesome. You'll be it, like five days in. <laughs> then buy too. I buying. That's all I'll really. be That's the most likely behaviors That reinforce you going to work. So these are things we call pre and reinforcers, which is a great term, I like that. Um, they're activities that act as reinforcers, like radiating or playing. So you can go out and play. This explains why this works, right, this idea. You can go out and play, but first you have to do your homework. What's a kid more likely to do if left to their own devices? Do their homework or, or, or play. Well, play. We use this all the time raising kids. We do this all the time. You're allowed to book play and stuff like that, but first you have to do your reading. Aww! Right? Okay. But, Dad, that's, that's John, that's not Maddie. Okay. That Maddie's 19. I don't know really if you tell me to do homework, it's sort of up to her. This is a pretty useful in, say, token economies, much more than object based reinforcers. Object based ones, so we could use tokens, right? That's things like, you know, poker chips for, for smiling, kind of crap. Um, instead, why would you say, if you're nice to people, you get more TV time or more video game time? Again, just to say a psychiatric institution or something like that? Huh. So again, exactly what we've been doing with our children um, you know, since we yeah. had children bro. It's pretty cool. Questions about that? It's pre-mac reinforcers. So reinforcement isn't just, I mean, you might want to call it still drive reduction, because you, you have more drive if you're uh, this kind of monkey to, to pull a lever. Uh, kids have more drive to, to, to play, but it's not the same as, like, some physiological need, right, like food. There. So we can apply this. Mitchell and Stoffelmeier uh, use pre-max principle with schizophrenic people. OK? Oh, I'm sorry, people with schizophrenia. There's I don't know. So reinforcement like candy and smokes uh, are is effective in schizophrenics, as you might think. And typically in mental institutions, psychiatric institutions, the reinforcers were either you know, candy candy or you have cigarettes. Not anymore, of course, because smoking is apparently worse than being Hitler. Now, they just look at people with negative symptoms, schizophrenia, catatonia. So uh, negative-symptom schizophrenics that have catatonia and social withdrawal, one of the behaviors that they sort of like doing is sitting still. Right? You know that about schizophrenia. There's positive and negative symptoms. The positive symptoms are like the uh, (coughs) delusions, the paranoia, that kind of thing. The negative symptoms are the social withdrawal, catatonia, right? So sitting in a chair is a really likely behavior. Okay. So we can now apply this. Um, the therapist went into this psychiatric institution in California and made sitting contingent on doing a small amount of work or activity. And actually improve, improve their negative symptoms. Because now they're doing more stuff. Remember, a negative symptom is social withdrawal. A positive symptom, symptom is too much of something. It's too much, say, paranoia or some such thing. just that's what positive and negative. I mean, that doesn't mean they're pretty bad. They're all bad, really. Uh good for you. So this is kinda cool. So this actually improved negative symptoms. People did more stuff, more social interaction, because if they did some social interaction, they got to sit still in a chair for a Which is what they wanted to do. Now, is this going to control schizophrenia completely? No, you need antipsychotic drugs. I mean, it's not like you can just control schizophrenics' behavior completely with um, opera conditioning, which doesn't work that way. We also, the drugs work well, so. Same researchers, in unruly nursery school children, as they actually wrote in their paper, which is why I have that there, today we would say, Something about we call we call it we call it daycare now, we call it nursery school. Same idea. So unwillingness from nursery schools of children, high probability behaviors running around and screaming. That's it's, we're talking three and four-year-olds. It was made contingent on low probability behavior like sitting quietly and paying attention. And it worked. If you sit quietly and pay attention, you can run around and scream for for a couple minutes. It works. And we again we've been doing this for years with our kids. And it's actually a reinforcer, because it makes the behavior more likely. This wouldn't have worked with me, because I, I went to nursery school, like I was like, I was like, for And I remember what I used to do, my favorite activity was drawing maps, because I was really, really for me in Kingston, would right? Make a map, showing the 401 going to Toronto, going to Montreal. Well, the teacher. We are here. The Germans are here, and then. <laughs> so this is neat because this is something. What do you think about in sports when you were younger? And it probably drew then, That in a practice, running drill sucks. It's no fun. No one likes skating around pylons. No one likes just passing the basketball back and forth. And as neat as it kind of looks, no one really likes You'd rather play. So, what's the coach always say? If you have a good practice, we can have a 10 minute scrimmage. That's what everybody's playing for. Right? What was the best part when I played football in high school? The best part was not block, you know, hitting blocking dummies, because that's no fun whatsoever. Hitting real people's fun. Right? So, be like, okay, if we have a good practice, the last 10 minutes, uh, offense and defense, you can squirt off and eat each other. And that was fun. And sometimes you get practice, you couldn't do it. But if you had practice, oh yeah, good, we get to run a few plays. Right? Yeah, it was more fun. And uh, I imagine if you watch an NHL practice, wait a second, there aren't any NHL practices. Perhaps one of these Swedish elites here in... See, I have to know about you know, German <coughs> Swedish hockey now. That bugs me. Over there, they probably do that, and then there's meatballs probably because it's sweet. So you use meatballs? Nothing. <laughs> okay. But you am the professional level. Okay. Questions about that? It's cool. It does support behavior. So there are reinforcers. In this classic Scenarian definition, <coughs> you know, giving somebody time to sit down by themselves could be a reinforcer because it makes other behavior more likely. Okay, we talk about bringing you some of the ideas of economics. We're going to combine two exciting fields together here, economics and operate, conditioning. Um, Those are both boring. So, think about this. A lot of what's happening in a behavioral situation like this is that an animal is responding or not, and things have a price. It's how many responses do you have to do. So you can look at it in terms of economics. And in fact, it's, it's kind of a useful way to look at some of this stuff. So this is called behavioral economics. So an open economy is one where the animal gets most of its food, or whatever the reinforcer you're normally using, so this is food, um, in a home cage. They don't get most of their, they don't live their lives in an box. And that's what we are typically talking about in this class. But there are also closed economies. In a closed economy, an animal is living in the opera box 24 hours a day. So 24 hours a day, it's actually in an opera box. What this allows us to do is not just look at the patterns of responding in a small period. We can now look at the pattern of responding over time. We can look at when do they eat, when do they not eat, when do they do other behaviors. Now, of course, the animal is living just in a little skinner box. There might be a place to respond and a bunch of other stuff. I know that a lot of Lori's work, she has chickadees living in an aviary, and it's a closed economy. They can go get a trial. They can go hop up in this perch and hear a, a, a sound. Hear a bird call, and then they respond. But they also could just fly around that room and have water and other free access to other food and other things. So she can get thousands and thousands and thousands of trials out of the animals, and not have to constantly be taking them in, putting them in, putting them out. In some respects, if you want to look at sort of applications, if you want to call it that, this is going to be a lot closer to real life in an experimental situation. Right. One of the things we can look at is elasticity of demand. What the hell does that mean? Well, those of you guys that took neuropharmacology with me last year know about this. Elasticity of demand, well, at least they caught it. <laughs> elasticity of demand is the well, you know, or even if you take taking economics, you know what like this right? Demand can be elastic or inelastic. Some things have elastic demand. In other words, if the price goes up. People buy less. If the price goes down, people buy more. A good example of that would be, well, gee, almost anything. Especially luxury items, right? So if the price of a computer gets too high, you don't buy that kind of computer. You go to a different one. The demands elastic. On the other hand, there are things that have inelastic demand. Um, now, clearly, there are certain things like air is an elastic demand, but you don't ever have animals. We deprived them of oxygen, and we had them work for oxygen, but your experiment went in very quickly. Water has an elastic demand, right? Um, food in general has an elastic demand. Types of food are, are elastic. But we can talk about, like, in human terms, coffee has an elastic demand. The consumption of coffee doesn't change depending upon price. It just doesn't change. Huh. In 1979, the price of coffee went up to $6 a pound. You no, know, a pound is half a kilo for those who scoring at home. So, so half a kilo of coffee says a kilo of coffee would be $12. And you're thinking, well, that's what a kilo of coffee costs. Yeah, and in 1978, that's the equivalent now of about $35. In inflation, because it was really bad inflation in the early 98, something you guys have never experienced. Double digit inflation, things just kept getting more and more expensive. So, if coffee was $35 a pound today, what I'm saying is people would still buy it at the same levels. They do. It doesn't change. People like coffee. Uh, this is for cigarettes. For adults. The price doesn't affect consumption for adults. Why do they keep raising the price? Well, it doesn't affect the price, it doesn't, it's it's elastic for kids. Right? So if the price goes up to twenty dollars and you're a smoker, you go, Well, I can't believe this. Well, okay, can I have a player's light, please? Large regular? Here's twenty dollars. He's buying. You know, buy like it, but you keep buying it. As a kid, if there ten bucks and twenty bucks, that's ten bucks. That 10 bucks means something to your kid. So we can use the idea of elasticity of demand um, to look at how hard an animal will work for something, especially things like drugs. So if we're giving animals psychoactive drugs, which they will work for. Oh, rats will work for, for morphine injections. They'll work for, for amphetamine. Monkeys will work for angel dust, for PCP. I wouldn't want to see that experiment. But they will. And the demand is relatively elastic for these things. And it's because they directly operate part of your brain that makes you feel about the nucleus accumbens. I'll learn more about that. It'll take brain behavior, and then eventually take more from So we can look at the elasticity of demand of things, especially in a closed economy. It doesn't happen in a closed economy, but especially in a closed economy. So you can see that term literally lifted right from economics. And we're using it in behavioral stuff. Uh, Behavioral ecology, which is uh, the branch of zoology slash biology, that talks about how animals' behavior changes depending upon their environment. And it's usually with access to food, access to mates. One of the things that we're really interested in in behavioral ecology is foraging, looking for food. Looking for food. Now, that's a pretty big task for an animal, because if you don't find food, uh, it affects your fitness negatively. You die. Right? You think about a lot of little animals, you know, like I I mentioned, a black cat chicken, if it doesn't eat an hour maybe after it's woken up, it's dead. The animal weighs 12 grams. So, food finding behavior is really interesting and important in behavioral ecology. Now, one of the things we're really interested in behavioral ecology is behavior in patchy environments. Most animals don't eat, now, some do, that have pastures, like cows et pass, and such. Food isn't in a patch and then it's not somewhere else. It's like it's all around me. The ground is my food, right? I eat grass. This is great. But most animals, it's not. Most animals, they go from one place where there's food, and they go to some other place where there's food. So we can look at things like, what's the probability that an animal will leave a patch of food? So you got different food patches. Okay. This is a little bit behavioral. So you got patch one, and you got patch two. And you that tree, and one left Now, you're in P2. You're eating away. You're, I don't know, you're a Hawaiian honey creeper. And these are different patches of nectar-bearing flowers. Okay? It's like the discovery channel, isn't it? I'll open this back up now, there's a camera the and stuff So, you're in patch. So I say two. When do you leave <laughs> patch two? When there's more food. When there's no food, I suggest that's one. That's one possibility. When there's no food, is that an optimal choice? Yeah. I was just going to say that you should leave when there's more food in the other patches. Then there is in the patch. Right. Ready? Yes. Yeah. Because it might be there's still food here, but there's more food over here, here, here. So you're getting close. But well, why would it hold cool over there if they're already, already finding food in one spot? Well, the food goes away. It's, it depletes. So like I said, if, if you're eating nectar, uh, if, it's, if it's nectar feeding birds, like hummingbirds, or honey honeycreepers, or whatever, eventually you suck all the nectar the plants. Now, there might be still some plants here left, But there's more plants here, here, here. So when there's more food in one of these patches, you should leave. Hmm. But can you be more specific, Jenny? Is that possible? But when they should leave patch two. No, okay, that's okay, that's okay. This is a hard question. Getting that far is pretty good. Other thoughts? Okay. You should leave patch two when the rate of return from patch two is less than the average for all patches. Right? Because the average value for all patches. Okay. That's just a little bit of behavioral college. By the way, that course is on next year. It's like 3107. Also biology 3107. Talk about each one and read So you go watch YouTube videos. Uh, Each one impression. Okay. So the animal has to know the rate of return at all these different places. Wow, animals are smart. Well, hmm. Actually, do know all these things that are doing this math? Probably not. I bet you'd do it. If I put you in this situation, I bet you also, by the way, very quickly would learn to leave right when the rate of return from P2 was less than P bar. I'm sure you would. People have done that work. It's you do a simulation, whatever. I know you would do that. But you wouldn't necessarily know what the averages were, what what the rates of return were. What's happened is. You've worked out a rule, and the rule you've worked out is when the rate of return here gets below a certain here gets below a certain threshold, I give up. It's called your giving up time. So if after a while I don't get anything, I leave and I go somewhere else. And in fact, when you do this over a long period of time, it starts to approximate leaving when the rate of return at one patch is less than the average rate of return for all patches. It's amazing. This happens in all animals that feed, that forage in patchy environments. So why am I giving you this little pressy foraging theory? Well, because this is a great, we can test this in a lab. You we don't have to use, we don't have to go in nature. Nature's scary. It's got bugs and mud. We could do this in a lab. We can do this in scare box. Why don't we set it up so we have three or four pecking keys for a pigeon? Right? Different rates of return for each pecking key. I remember I didn't tell you what the matching law. You think, wait a second, you said they distribute their behavior at the ratio uh, the same ratio as the rate of return uh, sorry the um, rate of reinforcement. Well all we have to do is we have to put what's in there, we have to put travel time in there, that's why these are far apart to patch. How do you put travel time in? Every time they leave a patch, leave, stop pecking a one key, they have to go to a what we call the travel key and peck it 50 times. So there's a cost. Then things change. When these ideas, when this idea was first presented by a biologist named Chernoff uh, in 1977, 76, it went like that. Um, it's called the optimal, it's called the uh, uh, marginal value theory. Okay? And in fact, it's that simple, but math, it's a little more complicated that there's, it's described using calculus. And no one thought that birds didn't want to do calculus, but they said this describes their behavior. How do they do this? And this is one of the first places where psychologists stepped in and said, i like to do this. Oh, I see what you're talking about. You are describing behavior. Now let's see if you can figure out a mechanism. Well, you know what? It's going to be hard for you to do because you're going to have to watch birds out in the wild. I can set this up in a lab. And one of the first people to do this uh, was—let i um, his name because it's a funny name—Alex Caselli, and he's at the uh, Zoology Department of Oxford. Uh, he might have a crossbow with psychology. I'm not sure. But so he's at Oxford in zoology, and Alex was a real pioneer of using skinner boxes to test foraging theory. And you can do this, sometimes you close, sometimes it open economies. But this is a lot, again, like economics, right? Because you're making the animal's making a rational decision. We just don't know how. And economics, a lot of economics. Assumes people make rational decisions with their money. Right? We know they don't always But the market kind of runs that way. And again, now and then everybody buys up tulips, tulip bulbs, or beanie babies, or hockey cards. Tries to sell one of these, you guys think it's, it's a retirement scheme. So Alice is selling. It. Worked, and this is actually for a long time the people at Oxford in zoology have worked with psychologists. Um, they got a really good relationship. They actually share a building. The, the zoology like and experimental psychology apartments at Oxford share a building. Uh, they have coffee together. Coffee uh, is 10 o'clock in the morning, and then at 4 o'clock in the afternoon they have tea together. And I'm serious. At Oxford, you break for tea every day at 4. No, it's really annoying. Um, it's cool in it's own way for a while, and it's like, really? Why are you doing this? Um, and then they go across the street to the pub, where Tolkien wrote Lord of the Rings, and read it to his friends, and they talked more. And his chair's there. I sat in his chair, because I, I didn't know his chair it was. This was the guy's Tolkien's chair. I don't know why Lord of the Rings anyway. I don't care. <laughs> um, But it's interesting, because... This was one of the, as I said, one of the first times when the psychologist and the zoologists got together. And there's a real and Alex worked with people like Sarah with my PhD supervisor, but also with a lot of other people. Uh, and a lot of them in Canada. For some reason, Canadians were at the vanguard of taking these ideas from behavioral ecology and testing them using psychology. Brothers recording work on tracks. Questions about that? it's very cool. And that's just one of the things we've done. The psychologists have contributed. I've talked before about how psychologists, about how, like, you know, eventually we're going to know the neural basis of this, and then why this stuff's gonna go away, but still someone has it's behavioral neuroscience and somebody's gonna have to design a clever behavioral experiments. Well, here, these guys come up with great theory stuff, but they don't have the expertise in experimental design, perhaps one might say the obsession that psychologists have, but also they don't understand. The notion of, um, you know, how opera boxes work and things like that. And now it's being used quite a bit. It's being used quite a bit. Um, I know that Alex, to this day, still uh, doesn't work like this. He's an interesting guy. He's, he's born in Argentina, but he's educated in the UK. He's lived there forever, so he's got this really weird mashup accent between Argentina and really educated British guy. And you just can't do the accent. Because my goal always is to do impressions of people. I, that's really you know, that's what I want to do. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I talked at the beginning of today, right, and I said we talking about stimulus control. So, what stimulus control is, is the relationship between the stimulus and the response. How does the stimulus control the response? And I'm going to quickly go through this and then we're going to go through it in much more detail on Monday. Um, Reynolds. Oh, actually, Monday. I think I have a doctor's appointment Monday. I think I have a class. Why is that perfect? Maybe I'm really, really sick. No. You don't <laughs> <know>. <laughs> yeah, I think I do. I'll keep you informed. I'm pretty sure. I can look at my phone. There's an app for this. <laughs> think, uh, what am I doing? What am I doing? What am I doing? What am I doing? I should ask Siri. Is that November the 5th? Would that be the next class? Yeah. Do we have any appointments on November the 5th? Okay, Gabe. I don't appointments for Monday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a doctor's appointment. No class Monday. <laughs> I didn't just want to do that. I've actually started doing it in Syria a lot. So. Um, yeah, so we'll get it. We'll talk more on Wednesday. But this study, Attention to the Pigeon, that Reynolds did in 61, is a real ground-breaker. Um, and two pigeons, the reinforcer cranking on a compound stimulus. Remember a compound with uh, light and tone, that kind of thing? Well, this is a compound of a white triangle on a red background. And this is projected on a response key. That's just the other little white key. Okay, and he looked at the rate of pecking in each subject to a white triangle and to a red background on its own. So they're trained up with red triangle and white background. They both have the same stimulus. And then he looks and sees what are they responding to, what's controlling their behavior. And we will come back to this next week. But take a look at this. I like the names of these birds, Fred and Bob. Fred's behavior is controlled by a red light, a red circle. Bob's behavior is controlled by a white triangle. He didn't explicitly train either of them. He explicitly trained with this. But one of them is now their behavior, their response is controlled by a red circle. Other one, response is controlled by a white triangle. Now, that's actually kind of neat. Why would one go one way and one the other We'll answer that question next time (laughs) on say 3306. Thanks, guys. See you in a week. Picture yourself lying like a switchblade. Heart doubled over in pain. You let your body overflow. Hide your instinct, good and deep. The world just goes to hell Throw my clothes out in the street Hang me on your wall Yeah